Hey there, welcome back to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here as always to administer your daily dose of death. Along with all of my sources for this episode, I'll also put a timestamp in the show notes to indicate when the story kicks off. I try to keep these intros short since I know they're not for everyone, myself included, but I wanted to just give some trigger warnings for this episode before we get started today. So today's story is a really devastating tale, and it was brought to the forefront by the movie Boys Don't Cry. Though the crime is known as the Humboldt murders, I'll be focusing a lot of the exposition on Brandon, which is a trans man whose life was taken. So even if you've seen the movie and are familiar with the case, I do want to give a trigger warning for extreme homophobia, transphobia, and sexual assault. This story takes place in Nebraska in the 90s, and it's definitely not the most tolerant of places. A lot of the events I'm going to tell you about are going to be very uncomfortable. Like I've said before, I'm not going to leave out details of a story just because they're uncomfortable, because someone else really endured this, and I want to convey the full scope of what they went through and tell their whole story. So I'll be including a recording from an interview that Brandon did, and the officer that questions him asks and says highly inappropriate and insensitive things. But I wanted to include this to paint the full picture of the hardships and prejudice Brandon faced daily. Also, the word hermaphrodite is used on some medical records, which in 2022 is an outdated term. So while I do refer to a medical document that has that term on it, the subsequent discussion will be about the definition of being intersex. Most of this story comes from the book about the case written by Aphrodite Jones. But again, because it was written in the 90s, it contained a lot of outdated language and a very elementary understanding of being transgender. For example, Aphrodite Jones used female pronouns and Brandon's dead name for most of the book. And that just didn't really sit well with me, so in my retelling of the story, I use male pronouns and I refer to him as just Brandon. The last name that's often associated with him in this case is actually his dead name, so I'll just be referring to him as Brandon. And finally, I'm not an expert on queer issues by any means, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to try my best to tell their stories. So if you have any resources you'd like to share as far as how to write about trans people, any other information on queer issues, or even any queer cases you'd like me to cover, you can send me an email at storiesfromthemortuary at gmail.com. Now I'm going to take a moment to tell you about a missing indigenous woman named Frida Jane Noah's Gun. Searching for a way home to her children ahead of Halloween in 2016 after getting stranded in Washington state, Frida asked a friend to wire her some money. Minutes later, she vanished from a Walmart parking lot. It's been more than five years and no one has heard from Frida. As the timeline for this case goes, in 2015, a year before she went missing, Frida's behavior started to noticeably change. Frida's sister reports that Frida started to come and go from the family home and would disappear for days at a time. She fell on tough times and started to hang around the wrong people. She spent a lot of time in Billings, Montana, and she did start to use drugs. On October 11, 2016, Frida called a friend in Billings from a Walmart at 2.45 p.m. She asked for money to get her back home to Crow Agency, Montana, as she had promised her three children to take them trick-or-treating. Her friend transferred the money and called her back 15 minutes later. However, Frida's phone wasn't working and the money was never picked up. On November 14, 2016, a missing persons report was filed for Frida. Frida's family filed the report on November 14 after she had missed her aunt's funeral, and they were very close. The police said there was little they could do, though, because she's an adult. 
On December 11th, a second missing persons report was filed for Frida. Frida's initial missing persons report was filed under Frida's birth name, Nose Gun. This report added the his to her last name for Noah's gun. In July of 2018, the FBI spoke to Frida's family. They're asked if they know what a hot shot is and are told that, quote, once you take that stuff, you forget who you are. So I actually wasn't sure what was meant by taking a hot shot, so I had to look it up. And what I found was that a hot shot is an even more dangerous version of heroin. As bad as heroin can be, it pales in comparison to a hot shot of heroin. The scariest part of all is you'll never know when you're getting a hot shot until it's too late. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, overdose deaths resulting from heroin use increased exponentially from 3,036 in 1999 to 4,019 in 2019. Between 2016 and 2017, heroin-related overdose deaths increased to over 15,000. A hotshot is a mixture of heroin and more powerful opioids like fentanyl, which makes for a highly dangerous drug cocktail. Additionally, there's what's called the gray death. The gray death is the name given to batches of heroin that have been mixed with other stronger opioids. The concoction gets its name from the grayish, cement-like color of the drug that comes in blocks. The name also derives from how quickly death can occur after taking the drug. This designer mix has become increasingly popular in Georgia, Alabama, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and along the Gulf Coast region. Each batch of the Grey Death can vary from dealer to dealer, including any substance they have on hand in the opiate family. Drugs commonly used to make Grey Death include U-47700, which is also known as pink heroin, pinky, and pink. It can also be mixed with fentanyl, carfentanil, and other opioids such as oxycodone and hydrocodone. While it can be hard to believe, the dealers that distribute heroin hotshots know how lethal the drugs that make up a hotshot can be. Any individual ingredient is capable of causing users to overdose depending on how far along a person is in the drug abuse cycle. As a general rule, the longer a person abuses heroin, the greater risk of overdose. With heroin being a danger unto itself, people who buy a hot shot of heroin are basically playing Russian roulette with their lives. Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. Carfentanil, a drug commonly used as a large animal tranquilizer, is 10 times stronger than fentanyl and 10,000 times stronger than morphine. At this strength, it only takes a dusting of carfentanil on the skin to cause an overdose. If you happen to buy and use a batch that contains carfentanil, death is all but certain. Unlike heroin and fentanyl, carfentanil is an odorless, clear liquid that easily dissolves in water. In this form, you'd have no way of knowing the batch you bought is a hotshot of heroin. Carfentanil produces the same effects whether you inject, snort, or smoke it, so there's no safe way to use the drug. While the unknown strength of a heroin hotshot poses a considerable danger to unsuspecting users, there's another factor that can be just as dangerous. Chronic users become easy prey for unscrupulous dealers selling toxic doses of opioids. This has to do with how the body interacts with heroin over time. Heroin effects force the brain to release large amounts of endorphins throughout the brain and body. As a protective mechanism, the brain cells become less and less sensitive to the drug with each use. This means that you're creating tolerance to heroin, so you'll have to take a larger dose of heroin to experience the desired high effect. Since heroin slows the body's processes, the amount needed to produce the desired effect for a chronic user can shut down the body's respiratory system and potentially lead to death. The body's increasing need for heroin can drive a person to keep looking for stronger forms of it. 
Under these conditions, the risk of buying a bad batch increases with each drug purchase. The likelihood of having a hotshot overdose depends on the types of ingredients in the batch purchased. While the presence of carfentanil increases the risk exponentially, even a mix of heroin, fentanyl, and or U-47700 can be enough to send the body into toxic shock. There's really no way to know until you ingest it. At the first sign of overdose, call 911. There's a few signs to keep in mind, such as nausea or vomiting, losing consciousness, pinpoint pupils, weak pulse, shallow breathing, clammy skin, dizziness, and sedation. At the time of her disappearance, Frida was 34 years old. She's 5'5", 150 to 160 pounds, a Native American with waist-length brown hair, brown eyes, a scar on her right elbow, and several tattoos including Mickey Mouse with a basketball on her right calf, a flower on her right shoulder, and Lyrical, Trinity, and Mason on her back between her shoulder blades. Frida would be 38 years old today. She may use the surname Nosegun. Contact the Crow Agency Bureau of Indian Affairs at 406 638-2631 with any information about her disappearance. After the break, we'll get to this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. It was a cold morning on December 31st in Humboldt, Nebraska, the heart of the Midwest. While many households were rising to prepare to bring in 1994, one sat ominously silent. Shortly after 10 a.m., Anna Mae Lambert drove up the narrow, rutted dirt path leading to her daughter Lisa's farmhouse with some things she'd promised to drop off. Lisa's house was set among a stand of trees a quarter mile off the main road. Anna Mae Lambert noticed that the storm door was ajar and the front door was open, unusual in the bitter cold. She knocked on the door and received no response, but when she heard her grandson Tanner crying on the inside, she entered. Anna Mae saw a man sitting on the floor of the living room, but Tanner's cries took her focus. She went right on through to the bedroom where she knew Tanner's bed was and picked him up. It was then that she turned around and saw Lisa on her waterbed not moving, with blood on her face. The waterbed had been punctured, and the floor was soaked. There was another person lying across the foot of the bed, but all she could see was their legs. Anna Mae Lambert picked up Tanner from the crib and went out to the dining room, where she placed a call to the Humboldt police. The Humboldt rescue squad took the call around 10.20 a.m. They were prepared for a long day, knowing that some people start their festivities early, and those who drink sometimes let loose demons. The Richardson County Sheriff's Department told them there had been some deaths at the old farmhouse that had once belonged to Frank Rist. After she placed the call, Anna Mae prepared a bottle for Tanner. Scrupulously, she tried to avoid touching anything, explaining to the court that she was an emergency medical technician and had been trained in how to behave at a crime scene. She only touched what she needed in order to take care of Tanner, and only with one finger and a thumb. 
Anna Mae avoided looking at the body of the man in the living room. She just focused on her grandson, feeding and talking to him. There in a house surrounded by three bodies, including that of her daughter, her first priorities were to take care of her cold and crying grandson and to maintain the integrity of the crime scene. Lying face up on her waterbed, wearing a long green shirt and black shorts, Lisa Lambert had been shot three times. There was a non-life-threatening wound through skin and subcutaneous tissue on the right side of her chest, and two bullets fired into her brain at such close range that there were powder burns on her head. One bullet entered through her right eye and exited below the right ear, destroying Lisa Lambert's face. Blood ran down from her eye in the corner of her mouth onto the bed. The man lying against the couch in the living room had been shot twice. He was identified as Philip Devine. He was 22 years old and he had come to Richardson County in mid-December to spend the Christmas holidays with a young Fall City woman he had met at the Job Corps Training Center in Denison, Iowa. Philip Devine was physically handicapped, with only a stump for a right leg and a prosthetic device that was attached below the knee. He was wearing both his prosthetic leg and the boot it fit into. The bullet that killed him entered his skull above the right eyebrow and lodged at the base of his brain. A large amount of blood stained his white turtleneck, and when his collar was pulled away, it revealed a small bullet hole in his neck. The third victim, the young man lying at the foot of Lisa Lambert's waterbed, was also a recent arrival in Richardson County. His name was Brandon, and he was from Lincoln. He had been in the humble and Fall City area for less than two months. When Brandon was killed, he was wearing black jockey-style underwear, sweatshorts, a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, and sweat socks. His killer had placed his weapon under his chin and fired. The bullet fractured his left mandible and lodged in the base of his brain underneath his right eye. There was also a fracture in the left side of his skull indicating he had endured blunt force trauma. A second bullet had exited the skull just below his right ear. It was impossible for the pathologist who conducted the autopsy to discern which bullet was fired first, but either would have killed him almost instantly, because both caused massive brain damage. Brandon had also been stabbed, a wound that penetrated five inches into the right lobe of his liver and could have killed him if the two bullets into his skull hadn't. The blood on his hands indicated that he had clutched his oozing wound before he died. Joanne Brandon was widowed young. She had married when she was just a child, and she was pregnant in April of 1972 when she got the news that her husband, Pat, died in a car crash. He had gone fishing and was driving home in his convertible with the top down. The car flipped over three times and went up over a bridge. Joanne heard about the accident over the radio, but of course she didn't relate it to the car Pat was in. That was until she saw her sister-in-law, Molly, talking to a state trooper in their living room. When the trooper handed Joanne a wallet, she kept telling him he was lying, that the wallet didn't prove anything. She just wouldn't believe it. Then the trooper handed her Pat's wedding ring, something he never took off, and she just fell apart. Here they were, two kids still in puppy love, then all at once, it was over. Joanne was petite, sweet 16, with strong model-like features, the high cheekbones, the almond-shaped face, the wide-set eyes that looked through people rather than at them. She had long desired a career as a model, had even modeled children's clothes for a local department store catalog. 
She and her eldest daughter, Tammy, a toddler at the time, moved from a two-bedroom mobile home off Cornhusker Highway to her mom's place on the other side of Lincoln, Nebraska. In December of that year, she gave birth to her second child. Joanne had a rough pregnancy and had been depressed for quite some time. She started having a lot of pain during her third month of pregnancy. With the amount of pain she was in, doctors thought she may be having an ectopic pregnancy, which occurs when a fertilized egg implants and grows outside the main cavity of the uterus. An ectopic pregnancy most often occurs in a fallopian tube, which carries eggs from the ovaries to the uterus. When doctors checked Joanne's uterus, they discovered it wasn't tipped back. They told Joanne it was a miracle she even got pregnant. Then, in her fifth month, the baby wasn't growing sufficiently. The doctors gave her shots of a thick serum. She believed they were hormones to help the baby grow. Months later, she was just passed overdue and trying anything to induce labor. On December 12th, when she went into false labor for the fourth time, her doctor decided it was time to induce her. It was a natural childbirth until the head was out. The last thing Joanne remembered was begging for gas. When she woke up in the intensive care unit, she really didn't know how bad off she was. All she knew was that the staff wouldn't let her see her child, that she had all these tubes in her, and that they had to cut her rings off her fingers because her hands were so swollen. The nurses murmured amongst each other. Rumor had it that Joanne wasn't going to make it through the night. But Joanne did make it through, and she was allowed to see her baby the next day for the first time. They wouldn't let her touch the baby as she had a staph infection and couldn't touch her child for five days. When Tammy visited her mom in the hospital, she told her not to bring the baby home in her toddler timbre. By the time Joanne arrived home with the baby, the sibling rivalry vanished instantly. Tammy considered the child to be her baby, and she was smitten with her younger sibling. Tammy's grandfather on her father's side was a full-blooded Sioux Native American. Naturally, her younger brother Brandon was as exotic-looking as an infant as she was. Brandon had dark hair and the bluest Irish eyes. He was scrawny at first, but blossomed as he grew older. Joanne clung dearly to her youngest child, the final product of her love with Patrick. Brandon was a good baby that was pretty much able to sleep through the night, but he was often sick. He caught bronchitis and pneumonia at 15 months and had to be put in an oxygen tent in the emergency room. He was forever catching a fever, a flu, it was always something. In second grade, he came down with mono. It would be a couple of years before Joanne got remarried. By then, Brandon was a toddler and called Joanne's second husband, dad, practically from the moment he laid eyes on him, which is why Joanne agreed to wed this man, Jug, in the first place. When Joanne met Jug, it was early September. By the middle of that month, he bought her a ring. On October 4th, a justice of the peace pronounced them man and wife. But Joanne didn't really want to marry Jug. She just wasn't in love with him. She tried to get out of the wedding, then decided to go through with it in a haphazard kind of way. In the judge's chambers, when Joanne was asked to say, I do, she paused long enough for Jug's dad to stand up and ask, Joanne, would you please say yes? For the reception, Jug's parents took the newlyweds to the Moose's Lodge on Cornhusker Highway. Afterward, when she thought about what she had done, Joanne went into the bathroom and cried for two hours. Apparently, her tears weren't in vain because she was very unhappy in their marriage and eventually divorced Jug. He became possessive to the point of no return. 
Jug's friends were always trying to come on to Joanne, and Jug would blame her even though she was doing nothing more than just trying to be polite. Although they weren't compatible as a couple, Jug was a great stepfather to the children. Brandon and Tammy now had their own rooms, but still spent most of their time playing together. Brandon loved to scare Tammy with snakes and dead bugs, just typical little brother things. The four of them were the all-American family, especially in the 70s, when the pace of childhood was slower and the Brady Bunch was a larger role model for people than anyone wanted to admit. Those years proved to be a wonderful family affair. Brandon was doubly destroyed by their divorce because it occurred just about the same time he discovered that Jug wasn't his real dad. Now he had two fathers missing from his life and no way to claim either of them. Jug eventually got another girlfriend, and when Brandon and Tammy spent weekends with Jug, his girlfriend would always put a damper on things. They loved their stepdad, but his girlfriend would scold them and impose her values upon them. Soon, Jug stopped seeing the kids, and Brandon took it especially hard. As a mom, Joanne was most concerned about Brandon's progress in school. Thankfully, he was a good student with a sunny disposition and a desire to learn. At the age of 12, Brandon was given the Best of the Bunch award by his teacher. He was more than just a good student. He was a good soul. While at a basketball game with a rival school, Brandon made the acquaintance of Sarah Gap. They went outside during halftime and chatted. Sarah was only a few months younger than Brandon, who was 12. They quickly opened up about their family lives. Sarah talked about her abusive mother, how she would be hit with breadboards and called a slut. Sarah didn't even know what a slut was. Brandon confessed the sexual abuse he was suffering at the hands of a male relative. From that point forth, they swore to secrecy about their family problems and eventually became best friends. A year later, they both wound up at Pius X High School in an exclusive area of Lincoln surrounded by big mansions, sunken gardens, and cascade fountains. Neither of them came from that kind of well-manicured world. They had only known the back streets and neon strips of the city. During his sophomore year at Pius, Brandon worked at McDonald's over on 27th and Vine. He didn't like it very much, but he put his best foot forward. He made his spending money that way and eventually was able to save enough money to move out of his mother's place and in with his friend Tracy Beals. They shared numerous adventures together, documenting their travels through photographs. Sarah became concerned when she saw Brandon with bruises around his neck. As the months passed, Brandon would show Sarah the handprints on his upper arms, his wrists, and it made Sarah really nervous. She wanted to report what she considered to be domestic violence, and Brandon soon moved back in with his mom. Brandon planned to enlist in the Army to take part in Operation Desert Storm in the fall of 1990. He'd been feeling out of place wherever he went especially being that he was a gender non-conforming transgender man. His family didn't know that at the time, and to be honest, he didn't really know that either. What he did know is that he felt more himself when he wore boxers, had short hair, and started binding. He thought that being in the army would give him both a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. He was parading around his mother's trailer the day he got the call that he didn't pass the written entrance exam. Brandon had just turned 18 in December. He was nearing graduation and had no idea what he wanted to do with himself. He kept his hair short, started lifting weights, and told people he was going to become an artist. No one seemed to be able to read him, not even his best friend Sarah. His sister Tammy was almost completely out of the picture by then, not really someone Brandon could confide in. 
By that time, Tammy had become pregnant and was in the process of giving up her baby to a lesbian couple in San Francisco. Brandon was completely devastated about the adoption. He wanted to be an uncle so badly, and now he wouldn't be. It was around this time that Brandon started working with Sarah at Bishop's Buffet, but it wasn't long before they both got fired. Things became more difficult all the way around because Sarah found out she was pregnant and the child's father was refusing to help. Brandon offered to move in with Sarah and financially support her, but Sarah didn't think that would be right. Brandon loved kids. He wanted to raise kids, but never wanted to have any of his own. For one thing, he hated sex. Throughout Sarah's pregnancy, Brandon hung around making sure his friend was taken care of. The two of them eventually moved into a trailer together. Brandon cooked meals and saw that Sarah got enough sleep, even drove her to school in the morning. At about that time, before Sarah was showing it all, Drew Lyon came into her life and for both of them, it seemed to be love at first sight. They first met on Halloween night, 1990. Sarah was lovestruck and immediately wanted to introduce Brandon to Drew. Sarah recalled that when Brandon first met Drew, it was about a month before Brandon got a phone call from a girl named Liz Delano. Sarah remembered that up until Liz Delano, Brandon didn't want to be recognized as a male. After Sarah's son was born, Brandon left the trailer and moved back in with his mother, Joanne. He and Sarah were still best friends and saw each other as often as possible. But as time passed, Brandon spent most of his days hanging around a redhead named Heather Cuffle, who only knew Brandon as Billy. The Billy identity started when Brandon had gotten a call in late December of 1990 from Liz Delano, a girl who had happened to dial the wrong number. Liz started flirting with the deep-voiced person named Billy she accidentally called, and they set up a date together on New Year's Eve. Brandon showed up to the roller rink to meet Liz, and they hit it off. Nearly a half a year later, Brandon was living with Liz's friend Heather, and was regularly going by the name Billy Brinson. Joanne tried to convince Drew to spy on Brandon, but after cheating on Sarah, he moved in with Brandon and Heather simply because rent was cheap and he wanted to win Sarah back. Though Liz and Brandon casually dated, he soon found himself in a serious relationship with Heather. Heather recalled the day she confronted Brandon about seeing both herself and Liz. It just wasn't fair to either of them, and Brandon needed to choose. Brandon started to cry, and Heather was devastated. She had never seen him cry. She had never seen any boy cry. Heather and Brandon's relationship was purely romantic. They confided in each other, made each other laugh, and comforted each other when they cried. One night when Heather woke up screaming from nightmares, she confided in Brandon that she had been raped and molested by a family member multiple times. Brandon could relate to the molestation and admitted that rape was one of his biggest fears, but he further confided in Heather that he was born intersex. Intersex is a general term used for a variety of situations in which a person is born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit the male-female binary. Sometimes doctors do surgery on intersex babies and children to make their bodies fit the binary ideas of male or female. Doctors always assign intersex babies a legal sex, which is male or female in most states, but just like with non-intersex people, that doesn't mean that's the gender identity they'll grow up to have. This brings up questions about whether or not it's okay to do medical procedures on children's body when it's not needed for their health. Being intersex is a naturally occurring variation in humans, and it isn't a medical problem. Therefore, medical interventions like surgeries or hormone therapy on children usually aren't medically necessary. 
being intersex is also more common than most people realize. It's hard to know exactly how many people are intersex, but estimates suggest that about 1 to 2 in 100 people in the U.S. are intersex. There are many different ways someone can be intersex. Some people have genitals or internal sex organs that fall outside the male-female categories, such as a person with both ovarian and testicular tissues. Other intersex people have combinations of chromosomes that are different than XY, usually associated with male, and XX, usually associated with female, like XXY. And some people are born with external genitals that fall into the typical male-female categories, but their internal organs or hormones don't. If a person's genitals look different from what doctors and nurses expect when they're born, someone might be identified as intersex from birth. Other times, someone might not know that they're intersex until later in life, like when they go through puberty. Sometimes a person can live their whole life without ever discovering that they're intersex. Most of the time when a baby is born intersex, doctors in the family decide on a sex, either male or female, and raise the baby as the gender expected of that sex. It's pretty common for surgery to be done on the baby's genitals and also for the child to be given hormones to make them fit in the male-female categories as they go through puberty. Unfortunately, in the early 90s, being intersex was treated as a medical problem instead of a natural, healthy way bodies can be. As a result of this societal attitude, Heather just didn't understand what Brandon meant when he said when he was intersex. Heather also didn't need to understand. She loved Brandon all the same, and she never needed to see him naked to do that. Joanne, on the other hand, refused to accept Brandon as her son. When he was little, Joanne got away with sending him to school in dresses. But now, Brandon was an adult. He was out of the house, and he had agency. Part of what Joanne truly couldn't accept was the loss of control. She tried in her own microaggressive ways to gain that control back. Whenever Heather came to Joanne's house, although rare, Joanne went out of her way to misgender Brandon. Joanne went so far as to bring photos of Brandon when he was young and his birth certificate to show Heather's mom. Joanne insisted Brandon wasn't intersex and that he never had any gender-affirming operation. When she sat Brandon down to ask if he was gay, all he could do was cry. By early 1992, Sarah and Drew had reunited and were living together in a small house not far from Heather's. Because they were both so involved in Brandon's life, and he was the reason they got back together, they repaid their debt by making sure to call him Brandon in front of other people and defend him behind his back. But as much as Drew and Sarah did their best to support him, Brandon was getting himself into trouble. He started forging checks and using Heather's mom's ATM card. On October 17, 1991, Brandon was tracked down at Luigi's Restaurant in Lincoln and handed citations for two counts of second-degree forgery. The count involving Heather's mom was eventually dropped, but count two, stemming from a $154.38 check written on the account of Brad J. Tullis, was bound over to district court, and this time, it looked like Brandon was actually going to have his day in court. Brandon had already had a brush with the law twice that year. In March of 1991, he had been charged with possession of stolen property and had to pay a $500 fine. He satisfied part of the judgment by spending three days in the county jail. He eventually changed his plea to no contest and agreed to pay the balance of the fine by making payments. Then, in July, he was charged with second-degree forgery for an amount under $75. That change was pending for a while, but was soon dismissed. Now, however, in late 1992, with this new second-degree forgery charge looming over his head, things became more frightening. 
It would take a while to resolve to get through all the red tape in the court system, but on March 4, 1992, there is finally restitution. Brandon was found guilty of the second-degree forgery charge. On April 15th of that year, Brandon was sentenced to an 18-month term of probation, the conditions as follows. He would have to report in writing and in person to a probation officer. He could not consume or have in possession any alcoholic beverage. He would complete a GED within one year, and he would satisfactorily attend and continue counseling at the Community Mental Health Center of Lancaster County until no longer required. By the time Brandon was sentenced, his relationship with Heather had almost completely crumbled. In early January 1992, he moved out of Heather's mom's house and into a trailer with some friends. One of the friends he was living with was a friend of Drew's named Kendall Hawthorne. Kendall wasn't particularly fond of having a trans roommate. He kept insisting to see Brandon's ID or else he'd kick him out. Brandon had nowhere else to go, and Drew and Sarah knew that. It was late in the afternoon, toward the end of January, when Sarah tracked down Heather to talk. While at Heather's mom's house, Sarah outed Brandon to Heather, telling her that Brandon never got a gender-affirming operation as he had claimed. As Brandon tried to explain himself and refused to leave, Heather called the cops. By the time they arrived, she calmed down and told them everything was okay. But that wasn't the entire truth. A few hours later, Joanne got an emergency call from Sarah. Brandon had swallowed a bottle of antibiotics. Sarah and Heather were outside of his trailer, scared he was going to die. On January 29, 1992, Brandon was admitted to the Lancaster County Crisis Center. He was brought there without knowing why. Sarah and Heather tricked him by leading him to believe that Heather's mom was an outpatient there. He was immediately placed on suicide alert. On February 6th, Brandon was discharged from the crisis center after the mental health board met and decided he should go to an outpatient treatment center. He was placed on home visit and initially taken to jail, where he spent a few days until his grandmother Doris bailed him out. There was one item listed in the discharge summary evaluation that Joanne would later deny. Quote, Mother does report patient was born hermaphroditic. At birth, mother requested patient be female. When Brandon got out of jail, he tried to will back Heather's love with dozens of letters and cards, but Heather had her mind made up. Brandon took the breakup especially hard, begging Heather to at least still be friends, to which she agreed. When he felt ready to start dating again, Brandon moved in with Rihanna Allen. It was a fresh start for Brandon and everyone else around him. After discussing gender-affirming surgery with his mother, Joanne tried to put her deeply ingrained prejudices aside. She and Tammy would call him Brandon, although sometimes his dead name slipped out, resulting in an awkward embarrassment. It was all very new for this family, and they tried navigating this new life together. Unfortunately, Brandon's extended family was beyond the point of understanding, so he didn't spend much time around them anymore. Brandon started attending regular counseling sessions to help with his childhood gender dysmorphia. He made excellent progress in fully accepting himself as male. His counselor encouraged him to explore the past and accept the present. Two weeks into the sessions, Joanne was invited to attend. The very first time the three of them sat down together, Brandon brought up being molested as a child. Joanne was flabbergasted. She had no idea anything like that had happened. No one had ever told her a thing about it. Now she found herself watching Brandon weep, and Joanne was left speechless. She felt guilty. She felt responsible. She felt like she had let it happen to her child. Joanne wanted to confront the man right away, but Brandon asked her not to. 
He just wanted the matter dropped. Of course, Joanne couldn't do that, especially when she discovered that he had molested both of her children. She was horrified, and because she couldn't get any detailed information out of Brandon, she went to Tammy as soon as she left the counselor's office. When Tammy confirmed everything, Joanne wanted to press charges. She couldn't believe that her children had hidden something like that from her, and she wanted to see her slimy relative put away in jail. But this wasn't entirely indicative that Joanne was accepting of her trans son. She was merely upset because she felt the molestation is what made him want to transition. As Brandon continued counseling, he also continued seeing Rihanna. Rihanna's mother, Brenda, accepted Brandon into the family instantly. Instantaneously, he made himself useful around the house. He would wash the dishes, scrub the bathroom, and steam clean the carpets. He would always show up to Rihanna's door bearing gifts, usually pizza and roses. It didn't take long for Joanne to do what she did best and interfere. She had called Brenda on the phone, urging her to meet up with her in person for something important. When Brenda came over, Joanne outed Brandon, admitting that she refused to call him Brandon and that this was a phase he was going through. It didn't take long for the news to reach Rihanna. It caused enormous amounts of cognitive dissonance in the young girl. She didn't know what to believe anymore. And once again, after another ruined relationship due to being outed, Brandon moved out. Rihanna cut up and burned the photos she had of Brandon, doing whatever she could to erase the memories they had shared. But months down the road, when Brandon had moved on and they bumped into each other, Rihanna only remembered the happiness the relationship brought her. When Brandon invited Rihanna and her half-brother Alan over for a beer, she accepted without hesitance and jumped in his firebird back to his place. Just as Heather had felt when she met Rihanna, when Rihanna met Brandon's new girlfriend, Gina, she couldn't help but feel a pang of jealousy. Yet simultaneously, she got bad vibes from Gina that weren't stemmed from jealousy. Gina just seemed really snotty to her, and with everything else going on, Rihanna figured she wouldn't be seeing Brandon again. All it took was a few phone calls and invitations for Rihanna to be a regular guest at Gina's place. She and Alan were now a daily part of Brandon's life once again. Brandon moved in with his grandmother Doris for a while. It was the most logical place to stay, it was free, and he could come and go as he pleased, often crashing with Sarah or Gina or whoever he happened to be with. His half-cousin Maury, who was around his age, lived with Doris too. Doris was the type never to say no to a family member, and she was tolerant, unlike her daughter-in-law Joanne. Whatever Brandon and Maury did was okay as long as they worked and kept out of jail. Maury was the complete opposite of Brandon. He was very flamboyant and drove around town just to show off his boyfriend. Brandon was more reserved, very self-conscious, and private about his sex life. It was early 1993 when Maury had moved to Lincoln from northern Nebraska. He was a party guy who made Brandon familiar with The Run, a gay bar in Omaha. Brandon even gave Maury money to buy his first pair of freedom rings, a necklace with six differently colored rings worn to symbolize what was called sexual alternativeness in the 90s, but would be described as being queer today. By then, Brandon was intensely in love with Gina Bartu, a lovely girl he met through Maury. When she met him, Brandon had just gotten out of jail. Eventually, Brandon and Gina moved in with Rihanna and her half-brother, Alan. The four of them shared a place at Shaney Trailer Park on 27th Street. All of Brandon's girlfriends could agree on one thing. He was the sweetest and most romantic guy they had ever met. They all recalled how he would notice the little things about them and always made sure that they felt cared for. 
With Gina, it was no different. He was always bragging about her to everybody, telling people how smart she was, proud that she was on the dean's list, a straight-A student. Gina's only other serious boyfriend had taken all of that for granted. Gina didn't realize it was such an accomplishment until Brandon made her see it. But just as his other girlfriends eventually found out, Gina also soon discovered that Brandon was really possessive, and he ended up love-bombing Gina. Gina didn't care about material things, but Brandon insisted that she deserved jewelry and clothes. Brandon didn't make very much money at his job, though, and his desire to spoil Gina overcame his need to stay out of trouble. He didn't want Gina spending her money, and rather than allowing her to buy groceries, he forged checks. On May 28, 1993, Gina posted $100 to bail him out, but was shocked when she read his paperwork. She confronted him about his dead name, and Brandon explained that he was trans. It's important to note that the labels we have today didn't really exist back in the 90s. Today we understand transgender as being an umbrella term to fit numerous identities outside of the female-male binary, but at the time there wasn't such an understanding of it. That's not to say it didn't exist, just that when Brandon comes out as trans to people, he's not using the term transgender. Brandon also told Gina that he had a bilateral mastectomy scheduled for June, but when June came and the surgery didn't happen, Gina pressed him until he admitted that he wasn't sure if he wanted the surgery or not. But now Gina wasn't sure that she wanted to stay, and threatened to break up with Brandon if it didn't happen. Then Brandon proposed, and though she was hesitant, Gina said yes. Brandon rented three rooms at the Harvester Hotel to celebrate and propose officially in front of their friends. 30 people showed up. They filled the hot tub with beer and ice and had a slew of pizzas delivered, and Brandon rented a tux for the occasion. Then, at just the right moment, he ordered everyone to be quiet, and he got down on one knee, took Gina's hand, and made it official. They set the date for May 28, 1994, one year from the day Gina bailed Brandon out. Then, all of a sudden, Gina got cold feet. She got her own apartment in August, but Brandon soon followed behind. Gina felt stuck, and when Brandon bought her a ring, she reminded him that they weren't going to get married. This was even more solidified when on September 3, 1993, Gina found herself bailing Brandon out of jail once again. Brandon continued to live his unstable life, writing bad checks, stealing ATM cards, and fully immersing himself into any relationship he could. His next serious relationship was with a girl named Daphne, and his exes got jealous all over again. A fight broke out between Daphne, Heather, and Rihanna, and ended with Rihanna being sent to a detention center for a few days. Even Daphne wound up in jail for a week in November. It seemed that law enforcement was getting to know Brandon and his acquaintances very well. On the day Brandon picked Daphne up from jail, they came up with a plan to hide out with Daphne's friend Carrie in Humboldt until things cooled off. Humble is way down in Richardson County at the southeast tip of Nebraska. It felt like somewhere back in time, almost like the Wild West. Humble is also far from civilization, 140 miles from Kansas City, 80 miles from Lincoln, and 85 miles from Omaha. It's a hog feeding and farming town, and outside of a few agricultural industries and some small businesses, there's not a whole lot going on there. Carrie brought Daphne and Brandon over to a farmhouse rented by a woman named Lisa Lambert. Lisa Marie Lambert was a young woman who had just turned 24, and she'd really just come into her own. She was born in Pawnee City, Nebraska to Anna May and John Paul Lambert. 
After graduating from community college, she worked as a nursing assistant at the Colonial Acres Nursing Home in Humboldt, where she was a trusted and valued employee. Before she gave birth, Lisa had been on the run constantly. She had even moved to Phoenix for a few months when she was first pregnant, looking for a more exciting life. But she didn't need all that anymore, and she was happy to be back in her hometown. In Humboldt, Lisa knew everybody, and the pace was slow and easy. Since she rented the farmhouse for only $125 a month, she was very gracious about letting people stay there. She thought Daphne was very sweet, and she instantly loved Brandon. Like all the ladies who met Brandon, she found him very attractive. But what struck her most was how Brandon treated Lisa's seventh-month-old son, Tanner. Tanner was a sick baby. He had been born two months premature, weighing just over four pounds, and he had been in an incubator in a neonatal nursery for a week. At home, he suffered from allergy and respiratory problems. When Brandon told Lisa that he wanted to adopt Tanner, she thought she had found the ideal partner. Brandon was more than happy to help with Tanner, but having a sick child strained the household over time. Tanner was often cranky, so his cries could be heard from all three rooms in the farmhouse. Brandon would never admit he was getting weary, but Lisa could sense it. At first, she didn't question the nights out with the guys, but then his outings became more frequent. By this time, it was now Lisa who was in a relationship with Brandon. Brandon never really stayed single for long, and he maintained friendships with all of his exes. He had a bad habit of lining up his next relationship when he was already in one, and with Lisa, there was no exception. A week before his 21st birthday, Brandon met Lana Tisdall after watching her sing The Bluest Eyes in Texas at a local bar. That night, he asked her out, and just like all the girls before her, Lana fell for Brandon instantly. She invited him over that night and delighted herself in playing hostess, serving him beer and chips while her entourage chatted. Her mom Linda and her sister Leslie were absolutely delighted by Brandon and were glad to have him as a guest. Lana loved having people over, and on this night, she had over Tom Neeson, Linda's half-sister Missy, John Lauder, and his sister Michelle. It wasn't unusual for John and Michelle to be over frequently. The Lauders were like family to Lana. But the more time Brandon spent with Lana, the more he distanced himself from Lisa. This only added to the jealousy that Leslie felt towards Lana. She had never known the kind of devotion and love that Lana received from Brandon. Leslie was in a constant search for that special someone, but she always wound up getting hurt. In the fall of that year, 1993, Lana's sister Leslie decided to get her act together for once. She'd already deeply disappointed her parents twice. The first time was when she got pregnant out of wedlock. The second time was when that baby turned out to be interracial, something that was widely frowned upon. Leslie wanted to make something of herself, so she enrolled herself in the Job Corps program in Denison, Iowa. The facility in Denison was one of the best in the country, and it was where she met her boyfriend, Philip Elliot Devine. Philip was an exemplary young man who everyone knew and liked. President of the Business and Professional Association, he had been selected to represent the campus at a Job Corps conference in Washington, D.C., where he met with U.S. Senators Tom Harkin and Charles Grassley on Capitol Hill. People knew him as a leader and an outstanding and charismatic student. Philip Devine was born two months premature into a life-and-death situation. One of his limbs hadn't formed, and he had severe breathing problems. 
His lungs were scarred, he had a tracheotomy, and he had a heart problem, so he was on digitalis. During her pregnancy, Philip's mother, Phyllis Devine, had been taking DES, a morning sickness pill, which was later found to cause birth defects. Eventually, Philip had to have two major operations. One was on his eyes, they had to cut the muscles because his eyes were crossing, and the other was on his leg. Because he didn't have a bone from the knee down, there were two toes and part of a heel sticking directly out of his femur, which had to be fit with a prosthesis. But when Leslie Tisdall looked at Philip, she didn't see any of his disabilities. She only saw a man she wanted to spend the rest of her life with. Just as Brandon found himself back in his bad dating habits as he began his relationship with Lana, he once again found himself arrested for forgery. This time, his name is printed in the newspaper, along with his being placed in a woman's jail cell. He stayed in jail for a week, while Lisa slowly came to the realization that Brandon was trans. At 2 p.m. on December 20th, Brandon made a felony first appearance before Richardson County Judge Stephen Tim. After the forgery charge was read against him, the court explained the penalty. Imprisonment of not more than five years, or a fine of not more than $10,000, or both. Judge Tim set a bond of $2,500. $250 would have to be posted in order for Brandon to get out. Lana was the one who figured out how to come up with the money, having gotten a signed blank check from her father by telling him it was for a hair perm. She wasn't able to cash the check as planned, so it was Tom Neeson who wound up posting Brandon's bond. Tom was doing Lana a favor. On October 22, 1972, Tom's mother, Sharon Neeson, went into labor with her third child. Though he was born Marvin Thomas Neeson, he went by Tom as an adult. Sharon drove herself to the hospital because Tom's father, Ed, didn't want to interrupt his dinner. He didn't believe she was in real labor because in his eyes, it was too soon for her to be giving birth. This ultimately set the tone for Tom Neeson's life. His formative years were plagued by drinking, drugs, and theft, and he ran away often. Dr. Rovert Kraft, the certified clinical psychologist who saw Tom, dictated a report on September 20th, 1989, which concluded that he suffered from a conduct disorder and possibly a depressive disorder. He was diagnosed as a person with a rigid view of the world who would likely be hostile and manipulative in his efforts to act out his emotions. Testing Tom Neeson against the multi-phase personality criteria illustrated a young man who might act impulsive and overreact. Intelligence measures showed him to be of low average intelligence, his estimated full-scale IQ being 82. In April of 1992, Tom moved to Falls City after having lived there on and off his whole life. At the time, he had lost his job at his father's place, had quit another job, and wrecked both of his cars. His house burned down, his dog ran off, and his unfaithful wife, Candy Gibson, was about to give birth to her second child, which he thought might be his. He stayed with his mistress when he first got back to town, someone he'd been seeing on the side the entire time he'd known Candy. Tom Neeson had been in and out of jail a lot recently, and just a week after his daughter was born, the law caught up to him once again. He served a year in the Nebraska Penal and Correctional Complex, and on September 3rd of 1992, he was sentenced to three years to be served concurrently with a one-year sentence from Richardson County. It was May of 1993 when Tom got out of prison on parole. Tom said he would provide a place for Lana and Brandon to stay. After all, Brandon had once again been outed, and this caused an outrage among some of the people he was close with, including Lana's mom, Linda. 
December 22nd, the night Brandon was bailed out, Linda had just finished with her dart league. Her league had won, and they were out at a sports bar having a few drinks to celebrate. In walked Tom Neeson, who handed Linda a note that read, Mom, I love you very much, and don't forget that either. You of all people should understand how I feel and what I'm going through, but you don't. If I can't talk to you about this, I can't talk to nobody. If you don't understand, I know nobody will. I just wish you were in my shoes and maybe you'd be able to see things how I see them. I'm very upset and hurt that you don't. You should accept my feelings about Brandon. I'm all right and being taken care of, so please stop Leslie from calling the cops on me. I'm a big girl, not a baby. I love you. Love always, Lana. The moment Linda put Lana's note away, she hightailed it out of the bar, screeching out of the parking lot. She followed Tom over to his place and barged through the door. She grabbed Brandon by the neck. She demanded that they go into the bedroom and he take off his pants. In the bedroom, Brandon nervously shuffled around, uncomfortable with the demand to undress in front of Linda. She got so frustrated with him that she shoved him against a dresser and accidentally shattered the mirror. Lana heard the scuffle and ran into the bedroom, peeling her mother off of Brandon, saying that she would see what he looked like naked, but not with her there. After Linda waited impatiently in the living room, Lana emerged and confirmed that Brandon was male. Linda, completely at a loss for what to do, left the house in a huff. She stormed off to a nearby payphone, fumbling for change. She inserted coins into the slot and dialed her ex-husband, Leland Tisdall's number. Being transphobic and homophobic, it didn't sit well with Leland hearing that his daughter was possibly dating someone that Linda believed was female. He asked for Tom Neeson's address, and he said he was on his way. Before he left home, Leland called the cops and asked them to meet him at Tom's place. When they arrived, it was already too late, as Brandon had escaped out of the back door. Lana, Linda, and Leland broke out in a screaming match, which resulted in the revelation that Lana had forged one of Leland's checks in an attempt to bail out Brandon. It's unclear why Lana's parents felt such a need to interfere in their daughter's personal relationship when she was 19. All it really did was illustrate how prejudiced they were. Days passed and Linda grew restless. She decided that her only recourse was to allow people like Tom Neeson and John Lauder to get involved. In her mind, she didn't have anyone else to turn to. They were her daughter's closest friends and Linda hoped that they could set her on what Linda felt was the right path. On the surface, John appeared calm when he learned about the whole sordid mess. He told Linda he wanted to help, that he didn't like the idea that Lana had been made a fool of. Moreover, he didn't like the fact that he had been lied to and promised Linda he would get to the bottom of it one way or another. Late one evening, in the chilly days approaching Christmas, John was able to get Lana alone for a few minutes and talk to her about Brandon. He spoke of the rumors floating around town, and Lana insisted that she didn't know what John was talking about. She said she loved Brandon, and he was the best thing that ever happened to her. John was wrong about Brandon, Lana said, and besides, it was none of his business. Ever since Lana was 12 or 13, John Lauder had a crush on her. When they were younger, the two of them were kind of an item, Linda recalled, although she never actually wanted her daughter to be with John, as he was too much of a troublemaker. Lana was close in age to John's younger sister, Michelle. The two of them were, and always have been, best friends. Growing up, Lana spent more time at the Lauder house than she did her own, her parents having divorced when she was just eight years old. 
Lana and John had an on-again, off-again relationship that started in their youth, spanning through John's stint in prison. Like Tom, being incarcerated was a regular occurrence. John wrote Lana regularly while in prison, and although his letters were sometimes friendly, sometimes loving, it seemed to Lana that he was trying to control her from afar. When he got out of prison and they started dating again, it was tumultuous and toxic. John couldn't handle when Lana talked to other guys and would start calling her names and causing a scene, but would go around her back and cheat on her. Lana didn't know what John wanted from her. It appeared he wanted her to wait for him to get out of prison when he wound up in there, but every time he'd be released, he'd wind up doing something to get locked up again. Prison was a revolving door for John Lauder. On Christmas Eve, John and Lana were at Tom Neeson's house, but not as a couple. By this time, Lana was with Brandon, John came with his girlfriend Rhonda, Lana's sister Leslie came with her boyfriend Phil, and Tom hosted with his wife Candy. Tom's brother Scott was also there, while the Neeson and Lauder children ran around the house waiting for Santa. For much of the night, people were downing copious amounts of alcohol, and the house was a disaster. There was garbage and empty beer cans and jack bottles everywhere, and everybody started getting belligerent as the night went on. John was being aggressive towards his girlfriend Rhonda, purposely bumping into her throughout the night. By 1am, John became outright vicious and hateful, teasing Brandon about being a girl, telling him that he was aroused and wanted to get laid. Brandon told John he might as well forget it. Tom ragged on Brandon too, telling him that he was no longer welcome to stay at his house. The two of them got into a yelling match, and it got hot and heavy for a while. Tom pointed his finger at Brandon, Brandon pushed Tom back up against the wall, and they were both in each other's faces and both kind of drunk. The two of them moved their brawl into the bathroom, and Brandon pushed Tom again, this time knocking him into the cabinet. When Tom spun and hit the floor, he picked himself up and came back at Brandon with a punch. At that point, Brandon held himself up over the sink to look at the damage. Of course, Lana was already long gone, already home opening Christmas presents with Leslie and Linda, so there was no one who could save them. No one to step in between the three of them when John entered the bathroom, closing the door behind him. Brandon had been dodging threats all night, but now as he stood locked in a bathroom with John and Tom, they demanded he pull down his pants. Brandon reluctantly unzipped his pants, showing his boxers, and he explained that he was still healing from his operation. He never had an operation, but what else could he say to make them understand? John and Tom stormed out of the bathroom, unsatisfied with their findings. Tom called the police station to try to get Brandon's bond revoked so he could go back to jail, but when he was told it couldn't be done, he became more irate. He and John agreed to take matters into their own hands and squeezed Brandon back into the bathroom to have another chat. A few minutes later, everyone out in the living room heard a loud thump. It was Brandon getting knocked to the floor. With Brandon unconscious, they pulled off his pants and boxers, fully exposing himself to them. They finally had the answer they were looking for. It was after two in the morning, Christmas Day, when John and Tom pulled up to the Stevenson Hotel. Brandon had run up there to make a phone call. He was calling Humboldt for help, wanting someone to drive down to get him. Instead of waiting outside, Tom had gone into the lobby to grab a pack of cigarettes. When he saw Brandon, he kept telling him to hurry up. Brandon went with John and Tom, and they quietly stopped over at the Tisdall's place. It was close to 2.30 by then. 
John stayed out in the car while Tom ran in, letting Linda know that he had finally seen Brandon without his underwear on. In Linda's eyes, Brandon was female, and that was enough to infuriate her. When Tom told her he had Brandon out in the car, Linda made it known that Brandon was no longer welcome in her house, not under any circumstances. Lana was down in the basement hearing her mother's tirade, and she knew that if she wanted to keep seeing Brandon, she would need to be sneaky. When John and Tom got back to the Neeson's place with Brandon, everyone was gone except Rhonda and Candy. Both of them were asleep, and Brandon knew that more trouble was ahead. His fears were confirmed when Tom and John ushered him back into the bathroom. Tom's fist connected with Brandon's face, and he fell backwards into the tub. When he stood back up, Tom hit him again. This time, Brandon fell into the floor, and Tom kicked him in the ribs too many times to count. When he was satisfied, Tom picked Brandon up by his coat and carried him out to the car. His lip bled profusely, and his coat started to get stained with blood. They weren't driving for long when the car got stuck in a ditch. Tom had to walk about a quarter mile to the nearest farmhouse for help, and after thanking the farmer for helping them get out of the ditch, they headed over to Falls City. Tom and John were still downing beers, John's driving getting progressively worse. They had to stop to pee a few times, and then John finally came to a place where he turned off the road and parked. Tom raped Brandon first, then John. It was Brandon's worst fear come true, and when Brandon redressed, Tom pulled him outside of the car to punch and kick him again just for good measure. When they got back to Tom's house, he and John ordered Brandon to shower and clean the blood off his body. When Tom was in his room with his wife and John was on the floor with his girlfriend, Brandon made his way to the bathroom. He closed the door behind him, pulled back the curtain, and turned on the water. The water made it sound like he was showering, but he busted out the screen window and broke out of the house. He desperately made his way to Lana Tisdall's house in the chill of the night. It was 6 a.m. when Brandon appeared, bloody and battered, at the Tisdall's front door. Lana let him in, and Leslie ran down the block to call the police. When Falls City Police Chief Norm Hemmerling arrived, it was obvious that Brandon had been brutalized. His lips were swollen, his mouth was bleeding, and his cheekbones were bruised. Later that morning, Chief Hemmerling turned over the rape evidence collection kit to Richardson County Sheriff Charles Lowe. The rape was in the sheriff's jurisdiction because it occurred out in the country. The kidnapping and initial physical assault, however, which occurred in Falls City proper, remained under investigation with the Falls City Police and was handed over to investigator Keith Hayes. Brandon called the only person he knew would pick up the phone, his sister Tammy. When he confessed what had happened, he expressed that he thought Lana may have set up the rape. Tammy was horrified and offered to come pick up Brandon from where he was on the Kansas-Missouri border to bring him back to Nebraska. Brandon refused, saying that he would find a way home. After Tammy told their mother, Joanne, Joanne got Lisa Lambert on the phone. On the day after Christmas, Lisa agreed to go rescue Brandon. In the meantime, Brandon was being interviewed by Charles Lowe and his deputy, Tom Olberding, about the rape. Tom held your arms. Which way was he standing? Beside you, behind you, or what? How'd he hold you? Arms up. he took it. Tom, uh, John under your pants, right? He pulled your pants down how far? Past your knees. How far did he pull your underpants down? What did you have in your underpants? 
Nothing in your underpants? Well, he's talking about earlier socks, but not anything in pants, I You didn't have a sock, but you run around once in a while with a sock and your pants make you look like a boy? Yeah. Alright, so after you pulled your pants down and seen you as a girl, what did he do? Did he ponder you any? He didn't ponder you any, huh? Doesn't that kind of amaze you? After he pulled your pants down and been wanting to take you to bed and you told him no, that you was a boy and he couldn't do that? Doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit? Huh? I don't want to. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you're a female that he didn't stick his hands in you. Or your finger in you. I can't believe he didn't. The problem with that man is John, I need to talk to you. It's okay, I'm walking to the bathroom. Walk in the bathroom and John turned around and held the door and Tom hit me once. I saw the tub. The black guy hit me again. I'm falling on the floor and kicked me in the ribs a hundred times. Stuck in my bag. And he picked me up in my coat, carried me out to the car. Oh, my God, I got in the back seat. I knew something was going to happen. That's the one. I did that with him. I did play. Tom told me to go to the city and make it hard. So when they got ready to poke you, how was you positioned in the back seat? On my back. You was on your back. What did he try to start in the first half? They tried sitting your head down, and you say you never had sex before. Is that correct? And which one tried doing this first? Tom. And Tom couldn't get it in you? Huh? Alright. He said he couldn't get you. He couldn't get it in. Well, I know it hurt. I don't know what Tom's doing. Where is going? The person was Tom. Is that fair? That's fair. Then Tom got out and what did he do? Then what happened? He jumped in and jumped his head and knocked it on to the passenger side. And that's it. And then when John got the vaccine, what did he do? He didn't do anything with Tom. All right. After he got his pants down, he got spread of you, or had you spread out, and he got a spread of you then. Then what happened? He changed. Yeah, the car, and got back to the other side. Well, how did, let's back up here for a second. First of all, you didn't say anything about him getting it up. Did he have a heart on when he got back there, or what? I don't know. I didn't look. He didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up, or what? Did you work it up for him? No, I didn't. You didn't work it up for him? No. Then do you think he had it worked up on his own or what? I guess no, I don't know. And you've never had any sex before? No. How old are you? 21. And if you're 21, you think you'd have, you'd have trouble getting there? Right. Oh, yeah.
probing questions were uncomfortable, but he answered all of them. Lowe kept asking explicit and inappropriate questions about the assault, blaming Brandon for being raped, and made comments about his identity. He made Brandon repeat details he had already given, forcing him to relive the nightmare. It was humiliating, and more importantly, it wasn't helpful to the investigation. Brandon eventually signed the complaint, saying that he would testify against Tom Neeson and John Lauder. Charles Lowe promised to get the reports done up to pass along to the county attorney. When Brandon left, he thought something would be done about this and quickly. Tom and John had threatened to kill him if he went to the police, and as he exited the doors, the clock began to tick. Unfortunately, no one will ever know exactly what Brandon reported, because the last few minutes of the tape from his interview with Charles Lowe was accidentally erased. Late in the afternoon, still on Christmas Day, Investigator Hayes arrived at the Falls City Police Department to review witness statements that had been obtained referencing the assault case. These statements were signed by Falls City Police Officer Sean Nolt, who at that point was the only law enforcement person handling the complaint. The entire department had been made aware that Brandon was transgender, and as a result, they took an apathetic approach to his case. The sexual assault was left pending, and Sheriff Lowe had opted to let County Attorney Doug Mers make the call about arresting Tom Neeson and John Lauder. Based on the rape kit evidence submitted, Sheriff Lowe could have arrested the two suspects immediately. Interviewing the men wasn't much help either, as they both denied raping Brandon. In mulling things over with Tom, John determined that Tom had given a pretty explicit statement. Plus, Tom had offered to deliver his pubic hair and blood samples, had agreed to take a polygraph, and had promised to return for questioning the next day, all things John himself refused. Tom assured John he was trying to throw the cops off track, that he wasn't about to cooperate, but John was getting anxious. Before dawn, the two of them were solidifying plans on how to take care of their problem. It was the day after Christmas when they conceived their plan, and they didn't hesitate to execute it. The men headed to Lincoln, believing they would find Brandon there. They made sure to bring a hatchet, nylon rope, and a change of clothing. 
Tom and John planned to use the hatchet to decapitate Brandon and remove his hand so he couldn't be identified. However, their plan went awry when they couldn't locate Brandon. What the men either failed to realize or chose to ignore is that rape is historically difficult to prosecute, and county sheriffs and small-town police in rural jurisdictions are often less than diligent in the pursuit of the accused, who will invariably argue that the sex was consensual. Charges are usually dropped, generally when the alleged victim refused to testify. Rape is a crime, moreover, that rarely has witnesses. If charges are brought, the case usually degenerates into a disputatious litany of he said, she said. That a jury was unlikely to convict John Lauder and Tom Neeson of rape was a factor they never seemed to consider. What they also failed to consider was that murder would be easier to prove than rape and that if the putative rape victim was killed, they would be the top suspects. Nevertheless, by the early hours of New Year's Eve, John and Tom were five days into a drinking binge. They set out in John's Crown Victoria, and they made three stops before leaving Falls City. From his mother's house, John took a knife belonging to his father and two pairs of yellow work gloves. The next stop was at the home of a friend named Eddie Bennett, who with his wife Amy was entertaining another couple. Tom stayed in the car while John went inside. On the pretext of using the bathroom, John went into the bedroom and stole a 380 caliber semi-automatic handgun that Bennett kept in a dresser drawer. On the way out of the house, he stopped to feel up Amy Bennett. The last stop was at the house of Lana Tisdall, who told them that Brandon was staying with Lisa Lambert in her farmhouse outside of Humboldt. At around 1 a.m., Tom drove John's car to Lisa's farmhouse while John gave him directions. Along the way, they stopped by the deputy sheriff's home to see if he'd be on patrol that night. When they reached Lisa's property, Tom drove down a long gravel driveway and parked the car by the side of the house. They put on the gloves before exiting John's car, and John armed himself with Bill Bennett's gun and a knife. They approached the front door and pounded on it furiously. Getting no response, John kicked the door and they entered the farmhouse. In a matter of seconds, they made their way through the house and into the back bedroom. They heard movement and knew that Brandon was bound to be in one of the three rooms. Lisa was dialing the phone when the men entered. John pointed a gun at her, took the phone out of Lisa's hands, and hung it up. As soon as they asked where Brandon was, they spotted movement under a blanket at the foot of the bed. They snatched Brandon by his arm and shoved him onto the waterbed next to Lisa, keeping the gun aimed towards them the sour stench of beer wafted from John and Tom's breath. There was a fifth person there that night. It was Leslie's boyfriend, Philip Devine. From the other bedroom, Philip could hear a chaotic screaming match, topped off with the wailing of Lisa's infant son, Tanner. Philip lay there silently, icy panic coursing through his veins. Tom, please don't hurt my baby, Lisa begged. Then a shot rang out, then another. Brandon was hit, and his body slumped back on the bed, his knees dangling off the side. One of the men revealed a knife and pulled Brandon onto it. He exhaled a final time before succumbing to his injuries. As Lisa held Tanner to her chest, comforting the crying child, Lisa jumped and screamed as she was shot in the stomach. They asked Lisa if there was anyone in the house, and she told them that Philip was in one of the other bedrooms. John fidgeted with his jammed gun and went to go grab Philip. When he returned, John was holding Phil alongside him. 
He begged for his life, ensuring that he wouldn't tell anyone about what happened that night. But John and Tom had heard that before, and they weren't about to make the same mistake twice. John pistol-whipped Lisa in the right eye. Her head violently jerked back, and she went completely limp. Tom escorted Philip to the couch in the living room and ordered him to sit down. Then Tom moved back toward John, and pistol fire rang. It looked like it hit since Philip slumped back into the couch. There was a second shot fired, and Philip slid down the couch further, partly hunched on the floor. Like lightning, John went back to Lisa's room. He tried firing the gun, but it jammed again, and he had to fidget with the mechanism again. By the time Tom stepped in the bedroom, the gun was back in working order. Two or three more shots went off. They shut off the lights, retrieving two spent casings off the living room floor before they exited the house. Tom got behind the wheel, and John gave him directions to travel an alternate route. They drove along the Morrill Road and crossed down into Kansas before returning to Nebraska, arriving back home to Fall City in the frozen dead of night. On the outskirts of Fall City, they stopped and threw the gloves, the handgun, and the knife into the Namaha River. The river, however, was frozen, and the objects remained on the ice, where investigators found them after Anna Mae Lambert discovered the bodies at her daughter's house, and the alarm went out to pick up Neeson and Lauder. The knife was in a sheath, and on the sheath was marked the owner's name, Lauder. John Lauder was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder, three counts of use of a weapon to commit a felony, and one count of burglary. He was sentenced to death for each murder conviction and to a minimum of 80 months but a maximum of 20 years of imprisonment for each use of a weapon conviction and the burglary conviction. John Lauder is now on death row at the Nebraska State Penitentiary. Tom Neeson is serving his sentence of life without parole plus 24 years at Lincoln Correctional Center. He only escaped the death penalty because he agreed to testify against John Lauder. He was 22 years old when he was convicted and is currently incarcerated at the Lincoln Correctional Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. Before the crime happened, few had even heard of transgender people. The Humboldt murders gained national attention, but the plight of trans people still remain ignored. Since Brandon used so many pseudonyms during his life, the public eventually settled on using his dead name as a last name, something he probably would have never done. When Joanne set up a trust fund for the purpose of getting Brandon's headstone, others were willing to help as long as it didn't contain his dead name. Ultimately, his headstone used his birth name and used female pronouns on the inscription. A memorial was established in Philip's honor, the Philip E. Devine Memorial Foundation for Unity Among Worshippers. Lisa was interred at Pawnee City Cemetery, and Philip was cremated. Although his specific method of disposition is unclear, since cremation was chosen, it's very likely that Philip's remains were entombed in a columbarium niche. His ashes are reported to be in Wright Cemetery in Fairfield, Iowa, though this is currently disputed. Brandon was interred at Lincoln Memorial Park in Lincoln, Nebraska. The Humboldt murders were devastating not only because of the number of victims, but because of the hate and prejudice that fueled the crime. Transgender people face this prejudice on a daily basis around the globe. The difference was that this time, two additional lives were lost. Following his murder, media coverage of Brandon's death completely tarnished any dignity and respect that he had. Brandon's nonconformity to his biological sex and genitalia, combined with the fact that people viewed Brandon's gender identity as misaligned, viewed his life as a construction of trickery and cunning. 
the media deemed Brandon deceitful. One of the many slanderous newspaper headlines read, Death of a Deceiver. It's evident that the media portrayed Brandon's gender identity crisis as the pure cause of his death. In addition, only masculinity and femininity were accepted as possible avenues of gender identification. Anything aside and out of the binary sexual identification was invisible, impossible, deviant, or deceitful. Society at the time simply had no regard for non-binary identities and viciously rejected Brandon's gender nonconformity. Institutional, gendered, and sexualized constraints are inextricably linked to the embodied constraints Brandon dealt with on a daily basis. This ongoing conflict resulted in real and tragic consequences. Brandon lost the right to embody space and express desire in his own way. Because he was marked as non-normative, he lost access to the rights and privileges that normative people take for granted and ultimately lost his life. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for next week's Story from the Mortuary.